Turn with me to Mark chapter 10. We're back into the book of Mark today. Mark chapter 10. And we'll be looking at verses 13 all the way down to verse 27. The bulletin says to verse 31, I saw that it was cloudy outside and that if I would have covered the last four verses, we would be here for an hour and 15 minutes. So I decided to stop (laughs) at verse 28 about an hour ago. So that's where we're going to be. Uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 13, and we're going to look all the way down to verse um, 27, excuse me, and then we'll cover verses 28 to 31 next week. So for those of you who are using your, um, your prayer guide or your, excuse me, your directory to follow along, uh, just keep that in mind for future weeks, okay? Just trying to serve you well this morning. Now, because of the length of the text, I actually just want to read four verses to you, so listen carefully. We're going to look at verses 15, 23, 24, and 25, okay? And then we'll read the entire text as we get to it in the sermon. Verse 15, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Jump down to verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When I read these verses... I can't help but think of our context, where we live. What about you? You wonder, what do these warnings, as strict as they may be, mean for important people, for wealthy people? What does this mean for a place like Naples, Florida? Many of you have heard the results from the Gallup Healthways Community Well-Being Rankings, which rated Naples the happiest, healthiest place in the world for the second straight year in a row. (laughs) Why? When you read the study, you find out it's because people in Naples take good care of themselves. They enjoy a high standard of living. When I was actually trying to research this area for myself, having really never heard of it till three years ago, I looked at Forbes, and it rated Naples, and still is rated, the fourth best place in the country for job growth. Asking people just what this town's about, or if they've ever heard of it before, you typically hear of things like prosperity and luxury, a destination for the rich and famous. In light of what Forbes has said, I actually noticed this more in the people that I've come in contact with. Many people who live here are hardworking, entrepreneurial, self-made men and women who want to make a good living, who work hard. So either they have money or they have significance, but I think a place like this probably is at least in part what Jesus has in mind these warnings for. Now, 
we could try to figure out what these warnings mean for people who live in a city like this. How do the rich and responsible get into the kingdom of God? That's a really important question. It's actually the most important question ever. I mean, four different times in these few verses, we talk about entering the kingdom of God. Other places in this same text, he's going to talk about salvation. He's going to talk about inheriting eternal life. And the thing that makes this so scary is he says that it's hard, it's difficult, it's almost impossible for those with means to be able to get this. And I think the questions in this context will rest the attention of some of you that are here, if you perceive yourself to be important or wealthy. But also, for those of you who don't throw yourself into the category of the rich or the important, for those of you who feel like maybe you could be excused from the heavy nature of this text, listen up. You can't wiggle out of these dire warnings either. They apply to you too. See, right at the outset, we all need to ask the question when we're reading a text like this, who are the rich and self-significant that Jesus is talking about? I mean, rich is a pretty relative word, is it not? You can always look at the person who has more money than you and say, oh, well, that's the rich person. I mean, you could do that wherever you are. So the question we need to ask, really, I mean, right up front, as we're looking at this text today, is does this warning about missing eternal salvation apply to me? So the rich are not only, in our estimation, those who have more stuff than us. We like to also place ourselves in the everlasting middle class. People say, well, I'm upper middle class, or I'm just middle class. What you need to know about the original context, about the people Jesus was speaking to, about the people Paul was writing to, is there wasn't a middle class. I know that's hard for you to imagine. There was a top one-third, there was a bottom two-thirds. But when you study economy in the Roman world in the first century, there was no such thing as a middle class. The rich got richer, the poor got poorer. So who, does, who would these people have thought of the, uh, the rich to be? Who would they have thought of the regular, normal, average Joe to be? Well, for the majority of the population, after they paid their taxes, it was commonly reported that they barely had enough to eat. So that was the normal guy on the street. They were looking to survive. There was no government subsidies. When you had major medical emergencies, it was stuff that you dealt with on your own. There was no other resources. You had to take care of it by yourself. People actually died from starvation. That's the normal world. Who are the rich? In this context, the rich are those who have more than they need. Now, I say this humorously, but I want to make a point. If you've ever had to declutter, take stuff to goodwill, or you struggle to lose weight, you are probably in the category of rich. Now, I think that probably covers everybody in the room. Think about it. These people did not have to have a diet plan because they were struggling to get the food that they need. These people didn't need to drop junk off at Goodwill because they didn't have that much stuff. So there could be an exception in the room, but just looking around today, I think that if we're going to be fair with this text, we can't point to Port Royal and say, well, good, this is for them. But we're going to have to say that this is for us, North Naples, Immokalee, 
Golden Gate. Bonita. In this section, Jesus has been showing his followers what it looks like to follow him, and now he's going to tackle one of the most concrete evidences of someone who is one of his followers. Now, I want you to remember where we've been because so far Jesus has had to explain some things that have just shocked these disciples beyond understanding. I mean, they thought, first of all, that the Messiah was just going to come in and just rule and reign and everything was going to be awesome, but then they understood that, oh no, he's going to die, he's going to suffer, he's going to rise again. They thought that they were going to be able to follow on his heels and suffer, I mean, not suffer at all, but experience victory after victory all the way into the entrance of the kingdom, and yet Jesus tells them, no, you're actually going to suffer with me. And greatness will be determined by how much you give up for me. These people thought that they would be able to have the resources that they needed to do what they needed to do, and yet we just saw a few weeks ago, like, no, you don't have any resources. You're going to have to depend on me in prayer. These people thought that they would be able to treat their marriages just like everyone else in that day and just throw them away whenever it became convenient. And yet Jesus said, you know what, if you're going to follow me, you're actually going to hold on to marriage at all costs. I mean, it is radical, upside-down expectations of what it means to follow Jesus. And now he hits another section pertaining to greatness and to wealth. It's much different than they thought. The kind of person who enters the kingdom is going to be different than you think it is. That's what he's trying to tell them. And here Jesus will focus with crystal clarity on the surprising nature of those who will enter the kingdom of God, who can really be saved. It's here that he's going to clear up all the confusion and the conflict. And Mark specifically does this by recording Jesus' shocking interactions with children and the rich man, to unveil who will actually enter into the kingdom, who will be saved, who will have eternal life. They're all the same. So the text clarifies, if you're taking notes, who will enter the kingdom. And to help us understand who will enter, we're going to note three surprising factors that determine entrance into the kingdom of God. Three factors. Two negative, one positive. The first factor determining entrance into the kingdom of God is that it happens apart from our pride. Kingdom entrance happens apart from our pride. Apart from our pride. Look at verses 13 to 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now what we see here in this little interchange is that little children are pitted against Jesus' understanding of who could enter the kingdom and that of the disciples. So, for example, it's a pretty simple story. You've got this scenario in which Jesus is there, people recognize him, and parents in particular are trying to make sure that their kids see Jesus and that he prays a blessing for them and that he lays his hands on them. Now, if you think about it from their perspective, why would this be happening? Why would they want Jesus to lay his hands on their children? Well, these same hands have brought dead people back to life, have healed the sick, have exercised demons. I mean, 
Good stuff happens when he touches somebody, and everybody wants the best for their kids. So naturally, they want to bring their own children to Jesus, hoping that he could have some type of positive impact on them. Furthermore, it was common for people in that day to take their children to the local rabbi to have him pray a prayer of blessing for them. Jesus was recognized as a rabbi and as a teacher, and so also, again, these people want their kids to be blessed. And so, they are rushing to get their kids to Jesus, but there's a problem. There's something, or even better, someone standing in the way. Surprise, surprise, who is it? The disciples. It's a strong word. It says that the disciples rebuked these parents. In other words, they were scolding these parents. They were commanding them to leave. It wasn't just, oh no, I don't think that's a good idea. It was a get away. He has more important things to do. Saying from my growing up, he has bigger fish to fry. This is not a priority for him. Leave him alone. And why did they do this? Well, in an honor-based culture, like the ancient Near East, children were esteemed as unimportant. They lacked status. They were viewed as auxiliary members of society. Since they lacked means and might, they had nothing to contribute. And consequently, they should not be wasting Jesus' time. Now, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but I mention it again because in America, in the West, we value children more than anything, and we think that they're the best. And I have five. I like kids a lot. But I think it's hard for us to put ourselves back into that world and help them understand that they saw them as an inconvenience. Largely, they saw them as a nuisance until they actually came of age and could contribute to the home. And so naturally, the disciples are thinking, look, this is not important. Jesus doesn't have much time. Stay away. And then Jesus, though, angrily repeals their no-child ban on the basis that the kingdom of God, you see that there in your text, literally belongs to the ones like these. The ones like these. In other words, he's telling the disciples, you better not forbid the unimportant from following me because there are one, these are the ones to whom the kingdom really belongs. Now I want you to understand something here. Jesus is not directly speaking about child evangelism. He's saying to the ones like these. It's very clear in the Greek text. There may be implications of this for child evangelism, but nobody in Mark's world was asking that question. What they're asking is, who follows Jesus? Jesus is saying, the ones who are like children are the ones who follow me. Do not forbid anyone that seems unimportant ever, ever from following me. I mean, to take it a step further, you see Jesus uses some really strong language in verse 15. Notice how he says, Truly, I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Anytime you see that truly, or in the King James, verily, verily, I say unto you, what Jesus is doing is he's giving an official judicial pronouncement about something. It's something akin to, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, like you would in court. So he's detailing in no uncertain terms here that the kingdom of God, if someone's going to enter into the kingdom, they must do it like a child or it cannot be entered. Now, notice this. It's not just that some of these unimportant people will enter the kingdom, but only these. The Greek is emphatic. It says, will by no means enter the kingdom of God. So 
not only are the childlike included as recipients of the kingdom, but they are in fact the only recipients of the kingdom. Only the childlike can receive eternal salvation. Now here's the big question for us. If we're wondering whether or not we're going to get in, if we're wondering whether or not those we love are going to get in, if this is a factor determining entrance into the kingdom of God, what in the world does it mean, practically speaking, to be like a child? You need to remember that the defining feature of children in that culture was their neediness, their lack of contribution. They were small, they were powerless, they were unsophisticated, they were overlooked, they had no credit, no clout, no claims. And as such, they received grace on the basis of sheer neediness. I love this picture. I think little children do provide the perfect picture for the humility necessary to enter the kingdom. I mean, if you think about kids in our own day, the the age group here based on the Greek word and the fact that Jesus is actually holding these kids in his arms is probably something of a toddler or a two-year-old. Now, we call that typically the terrible twos. We can call it the needy twos more than anything. Two-year-olds have no power, no capacity. They have no pride. They will willingly depend on others more powerful than themselves to meet their most fundamental desires and wants. I mean, they will loudly proclaim and testify to the fact that they need food, drink, warmth, that they're uncomfortable, or that they need to be cleaned. What do we do when we have needs? We keep it on the DL. We don't want anybody to know. I'm a self-sufficient person. And I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. I can do my own thing. And what do kids do? They just yell about it. They have no issues telling you what they want and that they are in need. They are the littlest indeed. They're needy and they know it. And therefore, they're not worried about what other people think. They just know that they have needs and they need someone more powerful than them to meet those needs. See, being a child is the opposite of self-sufficiency and status, which gives us our first major insight on kingdom entrance. In a similar way, being a follower of Jesus, a possessor of eternal life, happens apart from self-sufficiency and personal pride. No one will enter the kingdom of God if they think that they are important enough to enter it. Are you beginning to see that coming to Jesus is not a matter of your importance or what you have, but it is your neediness, what you don't have? It's been said, rather obviously, only empty hands can be filled. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'm sure that you think you're a decent and you're a respectable person. You're not that bad. But I want you to understand that there's no coming to Jesus. There's no entering the kingdom until you realize that you're not as good as you think you are. You're not as sufficient as you think you are. The prideful and the self-centered are with one fell swoop denied entrance into the kingdom of God. Positively, the needy and the selfless are enabled to receive eternal life. You know, this is a theme all throughout Scripture. I mean, from the Old Testament to the New, two of the clearest examples of this that I know of in the Scriptures are in Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus is preaching the Beatitudes and talking about who, the kind of person that's going to enter into the kingdom. Do you remember the first one that he gives? Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
the beggarly, for they will receive the kingdom of God. Or do you remember James chapter 4, verse 6, where he says, God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Have you ever thought about that picture? God actually resisting someone? I mean, think of like a stiff arm in football. You're, you're trying to get somebody behind you. God does that to people who are proud? And if you're here today and you're a Christian, this should encourage you because you need to remember that you did nothing. You did nothing. You didn't earn this. You don't deserve this. And you can be unashamed about your need for grace. You don't look down on other people. I think sometimes Christians develop a little bit of a spiritual pride and they come across as condescending to others and they wonder like, well, man, why don't my unsafe friends not like me? It's because you look down on them. Instead of realizing how unworthily you receive this grace. I want you to know, once you grasp that, it will actually enable you to witness to others in a way that you've never been able to do before. It enables evangelism. I remember hearing the old southern black preacher say that evangelism is nothing more than one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That's not a scary thing to talk about. When you realize that you're the one that's in need, and they're the one that's in need, and you found your needs met in Jesus, they can have their needs met in Jesus, that's not intimidating, that's not hard. This is encouraging for us. It's good news that the important people aren't the ones that make it into heaven. Kingdom entrance happens apart from pride. That's the first factor. Verses 17 to 25 provide another factor determining entrance into the kingdom. And that is that kingdom entrance happens in spite of our possessions. Kingdom entrance happens in spite of our possessions. In spite of our possessions. We see quite a different story here. You've got these children who are poor and needy. And then you've got this guy. Look at verse 17. And as he, talking about Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to them, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now let's stop there real quick. Do you get what's going on here? Here you have a very likely candidate for entering the kingdom of God. But he's prohibited, ultimately, for some unexpected reason. In fact, the reason is so unexpected that Jesus is going to have to pull his disciples aside and explain this to them because they're not going to get what's happening here. So I think it's best for us to feel this the way the original disciples did by first looking at the story and then looking at the explanation that Jesus gives for this story. Now let's just note the story, true story. It begins on a pretty optimistic note. You've got a man, doesn't say his name, doesn't say anything about him in the book of Mark, it does in the other Gospels. And what we see is that he eagerly, humbly, and respectfully asks Jesus a great question, how do I inherit eternal life? I think it's easy for us to read into this guy like some bad motives. Like he's some kind of pompous jerk, and he has an ulterior motive, and he's looking to buy his way into the kingdom of God, but... The text doesn't give us that indication at all. He's respectful. He runs up to Jesus eagerly. He bows down before him respectfully. He gives him a proper salutation, calling him good teacher. And he asks a great question. 
How do I inherit eternal life? Now, the word inherit, don't read the Pauline sense of the word into it. It doesn't mean that you have to belong to a family. It just means to obtain something. How do I get eternal life? It's almost like the Philippian jailer when he asked, what must I do to be saved? Don't get too caught up in the fact that he's asking to do something or the fact that he wants to inherit something that can only happen in part. You're reading into it if that's the case. He just wants to know, how do I make it to heaven? How do I live forever? It's a great question. This is the most important question in all the world. This is the biggest thing that we could ever think about. And he asked Jesus. And so Jesus latches on to this man's salutation to help this man understand, yeah, here's how you can enter into the kingdom. And he, he notice that he grabs on to the word goodness. Goodness. The guy says, good teacher. And then Jesus says, oh, let, let's make sure that you're really clear on what it means to be good. Now, of course, Jesus is good. But this man, as a faithful Jew, is going to know who the only good person ever was. And that was God Himself. In the Old Testament, God is the only being called good. While it was common for Greeks to use that word to encourage one another, Jews never called one another good. And so this man had a, has a loose conception of goodness and so Jesus wants to shore that up. This guy thinks in terms of relative goodness, and he thinks that Jesus is a good teacher, and he's probably thinking, I'm a pretty good guy too. And now Jesus is going to point him to God's absolute goodness to give him a new definition by giving him some of the Ten Commandments. He specifically gives him the second table of the Ten Commandments. For those of you who aren't familiar, you may remember that the Ten Commandments can be organized in two ways. The first four pertain to God and our relationship with Him. And then the last six actually pertain to our relationship with one another. The second table, it's the, the horizontal aspects of the Ten Commandments. Why does Jesus give them these things? Well, it's pretty simple. The second table is pretty easy to analyze. It's pretty objective. Like, you can know whether or not you've committed adultery. You can know whether or not you've stolen something. So Jesus gives him the list for this second table of commandments. He wants him to consider, are you really as good a person as you think... And he even adds one at the end. If you have a Bible that has stuff in all caps, that means that it's quoted from the Old Testament. You'll notice that the, the part in there that says defraud is actually in lowercase. That's actually not one of the Ten Commandments. Jesus adds this. But he adds it in place of the Tenth One. What's the Tenth Commandment? Coveting. Well, it's hard to really tell if someone's coveting or not. But you can tell a fruit of coveting, and that would be trying to rip someone off in a business deal because you want more stuff. So Jesus has given him a very tangible list of things that he can use to evaluate his goodness. And he's hoping that this man will realize that he is not good by giving him this list. But what does the man do? He naively affirms that he has done all of this since a kid. I wonder if his parents would agree. He believes he's a good guy. And look at verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. It's the only time in the book of Mark that it says that Jesus loved an individual. It's interesting. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, notice this, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Notice this, Jesus, out of love, gives him one last command that exposes his need. Jesus is going to tell this man something that's very hard to hear because he wants what's best for him. Can I say that? I, did, I can't bring this out enough. 
When people tell you stuff that's hard to hear, it's typically a loving thing. So Jesus is telling him something that he's concerned about with this man. He's not afraid of hurting his feelings in the short term so that he can help him in the long term. He's showing love to this man by pointing out something. And he does it through means of a command. And this command is going to expose that there's one thing keeping him from eternal life, and that is his superior love for money, possessions, stuff, wealth, whatever you want to call it. That's kind of shocking. It's kind of scary. Because we've already determined that all of us, according to biblical standards, are wealthy. So does this mean that because we have stuff, that we have to sell all of our stuff if we really want to be a Christian? Jesus' command is indeed radical, but it's not any different than anything else he told any of his other followers. This will probably be the most intellectually rigorous portion of the message, so I need you to hang with me tight for about two minutes. Understand the command. Look at it in your text. He says, sell your stuff, give to the poor, follow me. He doesn't say, sell your stuff and give all of your stuff to the poor. He says, sell, start giving to the poor, come and follow me. Let go of your things, start latching on to me. A careful reading reveals his responsibility to reappropriate his wealth in such a way that it reflects the values of God's kingdom as opposed to his own. He's commanded to start giving to the poor, to start following Jesus. Look, I want you to know that this is just the economic equivalent of taking up your cross and following Jesus. He's applying that same command of giving up everything that you have to follow Jesus to the realm of economy. Just like Jesus does in other places, like in Matthew chapter 10, remember when he says, if you don't hate your mother and your father and come and follow me, sometimes relationships can be the idol that keep us from following Jesus. Sometimes money can be the idol that keeps us from following Jesus. Sometimes comfort can be the idol that keeps us from following Jesus. He's having him give up his idol and come and follow Jesus. See, I want you to understand that He's simply being commanded to show that Jesus is superior. You know what? Peter was given a similar command. He says, look, leave your business and follow me. But you know what Peter did? Do you ever notice this? Peter actually kept his boat and he used it for Jesus. (laughs) I mean, you know that's how they were getting around on the lake, right? Remember when he told Matthew or Levi the same thing previously in Mark? He said, Give up everything and follow me. And what happens in the next scene? There's a huge banquet thrown at Matthew's house. That costs money. And yet he's following Jesus. What had he done? He had taken his possessions and had now put them to use for the Lord's purposes. The the clearest picture of this comes from the book of Luke with Zacchaeus. Remember? The wee little man. Zacchaeus restored those that he had cheated fourfold. He gave half his goods to the poor. And then notice what Jesus said to him afterward. Today, salvation has come to his house. He didn't give all of his goods to the poor. But the point is that he took his wealth and he began to use it for something different. I mean, it's still radical. But it's not some call to monasticism or to poverty. 
I mean, if that were really the case, there would eventually come a point in time, logically speaking, where somebody couldn't be saved. Think about it. If we just kept giving all our money away to somebody else and somebody else, well, in the end, somebody's got all the money and they can't give it away to anybody anymore. This is not what he's talking about. The point is that the rich will follow Jesus in a way that shows their superior love for him over their stuff. Here's the question. Would he live for cash or the Christ? Would he live for money or the Messiah? Would he live for stuff or the Savior? That's the question. And notice his answer in verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You know, the verbs here in the original language could portray sadness or shock. Sadness or shock. It actually seems to be more likely that he's angered, he's appalled, he's distressed. The particular verb that's here, disheartened by the saying, denotes a countenance changing. This same word is used in the book of Matthew to denote a gloomy or stormy sky. Can you see this guy's face changing? He's so optimistic. He's so happy. He's so eager thinking, all right, just tell me the one thing I'm going to do to be able to inherit to eternal life. And then Jesus gives it to him. And his whole countenance changes. And some of the saddest words in all the Bible. He went away. He went away. He went away sorrowful. Why? For he had great possessions. This was sad for the man, and this was downright stupefying for Jesus' followers. He had to explain it. Look at verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to know that the point of this is not the story. The point of this is the explanation. Who's he teaching in this section? His disciples. This isn't a direct appeal. You're not going to hear me say, if you want to come follow Jesus, sell everything that you have, give it to the church and follow it. That's that's not the point. The point is how these people responded. So he looks around at his disciples and he wants them to learn this lesson. He wants them to know who can really enter the kingdom of God. And first of all, he talks about difficult. He says, it is difficult for the rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That's the first thing he said. And then notice the second one, carefully, We believe that every word of the Bible is inspired. The words that are in there and the words that are taken out. Do you notice that the second time he says, not just the wealthy, it is difficult for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God, but he said it's difficult for anybody to enter the kingdom of God. So just in case you thought that you were like excluded from this message because you're not rich, look, I want you to know, Jesus makes it clear, it is difficult for anybody to enter the kingdom of God. And as if it wasn't hard enough to hear this, Jesus turns it up a notch. He takes it from difficult to downright impossible by giving this this really funny picture. Now, you need to understand how these people thought. What you have is the largest animal in Palestine, a camel. You ever seen one of those in person? They're pretty big. The largest animal in Palestine fitting into the smallest hole imaginable in Palestine, a sewing needle which had been around for over 2,000 years. Now, there's no way. There's no way that that camels fit into sewing needles. It's impossible. 
That's what Jesus wants them to understand. Now, I don't like doing this kind of stuff, but I have to because preachers can fall prey to bad interpretation just like anybody else. Sometimes pastors can find things from history that they think will preach and they sound really creative and good, and they're just not true. All right, I'm just so I'm admitting this for my class. Look, I want you to know something. How many of you have ever heard this idea that what Jesus really means here is that camels needed to fit, were trying to fit through the special gate in Jerusalem where they'd have to take off all of their stuff and crawl through on their knees? Has anybody ever heard that before? Just raise your hand. I need to know. Some of you are giving me this shocked look like you've never heard that. Good for you. I'm glad you've never heard that. I want you to know that beginning in the ninth century, People actually started, there was one guy who decided to start calling this special gate in Jerusalem at that time. Now, again, it's 900 years after Jesus. They started calling this special gate the, uh, the needle gate, and it, which referred to camels needing to unburden themselves to get through this special small gate. Now, interpreters for over a thousand years have latched onto that because they don't like the uncomfort or discomfort of something being impossible. They want to make it more likely that a rich person can make it into the kingdom of God. I want you to understand something. Jesus, there was no such thing. That gate did not exist till the ninth century. That interpretation is wrong if you've ever heard it before. And for those of you who have never heard that, good for you. Let's just all be on the same page. Jesus is talking about something impossible. This is really important because you need to get it. Coming to into the kingdom by yourself is not just unlikely. It is not just unlikely. It is impossible. Especially for rich people. Especially for people like us. And this blew them away. The text says that they were amazed. They were astonished. They were surprised. Why? Why were they so surprised? Because people in that world associated wealth with God's blessing and virtuous living. Now, ever since Charles Dickens, Ebenezer Scrooge, we haven't had a hard time of thinking of some rich people as being conniving and evil. But I want you to know that in the first century, it was generally assumed that the best people in all the world were the rich people. The Jews thought that for sure. They thought that monetary blessing was a sign of favor from God. And indeed it was. But one of the interesting things, though, is that they also forgot, conveniently, that God also gave monetary blessings to people who weren't righteous. That's what many of the Psalms are about, because the people are so confused, like, Lord, if you love us, if you care for us, why don't you give us more stuff? Why is it that the wicked prosper? Why do the heathen get the things that they want? So that was the error of the Jews, but where is this being written to? If you remember well, it's being written to Rome. The Romans thought the same thing. They thought that it was the blessing of the gods if you had money. But they even thought that if you were poor, it was impossible to live a virtuous life because you would have to cheat and steal to survive. Only the wealthy could live for God, if you will. So that was the popular thought of the day. And they're thinking like, oh no! If the rich person can't get into the kingdom of God, what about us? I mean, if the best person, the most likely to be saved, the the shoe man for the kingdom can't get in, how are we going to get in? So how do we get in? What is Jesus calling for here? What, What is he trying to say? I think that we could get to the bottom of this by asking a simple question. Two simple questions. For those of you who are people of abundance, 
And I'm assuming that that's most of you in the room. The question is this, do you worship God or gold? Is your overriding passion the Savior or your stuff? That's all Jesus is saying. People who have a lot of stuff have a hard time loving Jesus more than that. Here's a good review for us. If you're a follower of Jesus here today, if you, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus today, you worship the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We believe that the Father primarily was responsible for creating. We believe that the Son was primarily responsible for redeeming. We believe that the Spirit is primarily responsible for comforting. And because of that, we look to God to give us what we need because He creates. We look to God to comfort us in our times of distress because He's the one that comforts us. We look for God to bring us our salvation because He's the only one that can save. And in light of that, we serve Him with abandon. We're willing to give up everything. We're willing to sacrifice for Him. We commit ourselves to advancing His agenda. We, We want to see the Gospel go forward. We want to represent Him in what we do and what we say. Wherever He's placed us, our life and all that it is, is His. But non-followers of Jesus, non-Christians, they choose to worship something else. They typically choose to worship the unholy trinity of possessions, material things, and wealth. Now, it's possible that some of you in here today worship money as creator. You view it as the thing that can make opportunities for you, that can give you the lifestyle that you want, that can secure for you the things that you so desire. Some worship money as Savior. They think that if they have enough, they'll be able to preserve their physical health, that they'll be able to ensure their future well-being. And some worship money as comforter. You accumulate things to make your homes more comfortable, to satisfy your depression and pain. They, they buy stuff and toys and technology and experiences. And in light of that, in light of this unholy trinity, you know what the unsafe person is willing to do? They're willing to serve money and sacrifice for it. They live for it. They're committed to making it at all costs. It doesn't matter if it costs them their marriage, their kids, their church, other believers, and their relationships with them. They just want more. Because it's the all-important, the most precious creator, redeemer, and comforter. It is an idol, and it is called money. Here's the deal. If you will enter the kingdom, if, if that's your desire, you will love Jesus even more. Money is such a convenient God. It's powerful and it does what you want. But Jesus is different. He's more powerful and you do what He wants. What does this mean for us? I I want to be clear on this because it would be really easy to be misunderstood. Look, I want you to get something. This text isn't telling us that if you, you can't have money and follow Jesus. What it's calling us to realize as Christians is that if you do have money, you realize that it ultimately belongs to Jesus. Does that make sense? 
It's used to accomplish His purposes. True believers, true, the people who are going to enter the kingdom of God, they're all in, even with their bank account. I think this should encourage you. I see so many of you, you seem to do this so well. People at Faith Bible, they live generously. Now this is a caveat that just needs to be reminded every once in a while. I have no clue as the pastor here who gives, how much they give, whatever. I willingly do not know those things. And so you can just like understand and breathe easy. <laughs> I have no one in my I don't I don't know. But I do care. Because how you spend your money, how I spend my money reveals what I really love and care for. Look, the good thing is, is that I, all I know is that the resources that, that this church needs to accomplish gospel ministry in Naples, we have. And I, I know that, you know, the percentage I give every month isn't paying for it all. <laughs> Somebody else is, is, is picking up the bill here. But I want you to know that I see this generosity not only in the fact that we have the means that we need to accomplish gospel ministry in this church, but... I see generosity even in your individual lives. One of the interesting things about this fire in Golden Gate is just how quickly I've heard of other people in the church offering to other people in the church homes. You can come live with us. You can come stay with us. We're going to take care of you. And I have a feeling that if the fire were to touch anyone's house, that they would have everything that they need in short order. This is the kind of place we are. This is what it means to follow Jesus. When I come to Him and when I decide to follow Him, all of me follows Him. It's not about 10% or whatever. It's about everything. Everything that I have is for Him. That's what Jesus is saying. This is how people follow Him. Some great instruction comes to us from Charles Wesley. He was actually one of the wealthiest pastors that was ministering in his time. He had a great salary. Never heard of Wesley. I encourage you to look him up. But he realized something, that he wasn't using his money in the best way. He wasn't using it all for, for God's glory. And so he began to do a theology of money, and he's written some interesting things on it. But I want to give you his takeaway. This is the instruction that he gives for all of us as Christ followers. This is what he says about how you can best use your money to glorify God. I would encourage you to write these things down. This is so helpful. He says, don't worry about it. He says, here's what you need to do. Make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Makes sense, right? Make what you can. Sacrifice the things that you don't need so you can save so that you can give and meet other needs. There's nothing spiritual about not making any money. Nothing spiritual about you doing a poor job. We should do the best. We should try to earn a profit. We should try to save that money so that we don't have to rely on other people. And then we should give generously as God has blessed us. So the point is that entering the kingdom happens apart from pride and it happens in spite of possessions. But if these things are negative, what is the positive factor determining entrance into the kingdom? Here it is, only one thing, verses 26 and 27. Kingdom entrance happens on account of God's power. Kingdom entrance happens on account of God's power. 
So we haven't really given any answers yet. We just know that prideful people can't get into the kingdom and people who are consumed with stuff can't get into the kingdom. So who gets in? If nobody gets in, I mean, if it's impossible, how, how, how do we change that? This is where I love verses 26 and 27. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Only God can make salvation possible. That's what he wants them to understand in the end. He wants them to get the fact that they would never be able to buy their way into the kingdom. He wants them to get the fact that they would never be able to impress enough people to make it through the pearly gates, if you will. He wanted them to understand that if they're going to be saved, it won't be by anything that they do, but only what God Himself can do. He's the one that qualifies us for entrance into the kingdom. Getting into the kingdom, receiving eternal life, being saved is humanly impossible. That's why that camel and eye of the needle analogy is so important. It is humanly impossible. It cannot happen. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. It has to be a work of God. God is the only one that can fit camels through eyes of needles. He's the only one who gets rich people, or any people, into the kingdom of God. Some are tempted to believe that salvation is a two-way street. I do my part and God does His part and then we meet in the middle. Listen, I want you to understand that that is true only insofar as you understand that you did all the sinning and God did all the saving. You contribute nothing positively to this deal. And your faith and repentance is only a sign that God has done a work in you to bring you to Himself. It's not about our status. It's not about our track record of obedience. It's not about our material blessings. It is about God's power. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It is that foolish message of a Jesus Christ who would come and live and die, be buried, rise again. And believing in that and that alone that gives us the capacity to enter into the kingdom of God. That's why Ephesians 2 reminds us when it lists about like how impossible it was for us to be saved in verses 1 through 4. And then it changes directions and he says, but God. <laughs> but God showed mercy to us. He showed grace to us. And then those famous verses that you memorized as a kid, many of you, for by grace you've been saved. For by grace you've been saved. You understand that. Not of works. Lest any man should It is a gift of God. Salvation is something that He does. So here's what we need to be crystal clear on. Can the rich be saved? Can those of us, all of us, with excess things and food be saved? No. <laughs> no, we cannot. We cannot be saved by our goodness, our grit, our generosity, by our unaided efforts. It, there's nothing we can do. But, yes, with God, we can be saved. The one who casts himself on the mercy of God and relies on Him for help like a little child can be saved. The one who has been convinced by the Spirit that He did all the sinning and that Christ does all the saving can enter into the kingdom. The one who has been divinely enabled to turn from his materialism to start worshiping Jesus as the Messiah will be saved. So here's the deal today. If you're here... And you're thinking like, whoa, I'm hearing this and I don't really know if I can be a Christian. You can. 
He can save you. You're not beyond His grace. He's in the business of doing the impossible. Just follow Him. And I think this is really healthy for Christians because sometimes we think that there are certain people in life who are beyond all hope. They were just so entrenched in their stuff. They were so entrenched in their self-significance that we think that there is no way this person is going to come to Jesus. And you know what this text reminds us? God does the impossible. He can save anyone. So the least will enter the kingdom of God apart from their pride, in spite of their possessions, and on account of God's power. Now, we need to wrap this up. And I want, to, I want to help you by asking you one final question to help you determine for yourself and for others who really gets in. Here's the big review question. If you had to give up everything in life but one thing, what would it be? Think about it. If you had to give up everything in life but one thing, what would it be? Health, bank account? Wife, children, job. Don't be limited to my suggestions, but I want you to think of that one thing. Do you have it? If I understand this text correct, the one entering the kingdom, the inheritor of eternal life, the one who is saved would answer that question with this. Jesus. The true Christian, the true Christ follower, the one who will end up in heaven would rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. More than reputation, more than possessions, more than houses, lands, or even relationships, Christians will enter the kingdom on account of Christ because He's all we have. That's all they want. Yeah, you want the other things. But if you had to limit it to one thing, would it be Jesus? And so here's the final appeal. If you're here today and you're you're kind of torn on whether or not it would be worth it to put Him first and actually receive the grace that He's offering you, even though you realize that it would make you the least in this life and it would change you in ways that would seem uncomfortable. I don't know how to say this, but eternal life is worth it. Eternal rescue is worth it. I mean, that's why I like the term be saved, be saved. Just tell you this really quickly, my family and I were at the beach yesterday and my daughter the two-year-old was on this little inflatable shark and I was only three feet away from her she was holding on for dear life just kind of floating in the water and there there came a time I don't even remember what happened how it happened it doesn't matter it happened it flipped upside down and for the three longest seconds of mine and my wife's life she was under the water picked her up, I pulled her up. She was fine. She cried. She was saved. Now, just giving you that quick little picture of salvation in an earthly sense helps you see like, oh, this is a big deal. What I'm talking about this morning isn't merely about this life. I'm talking about eternity. And I'm saying that it's a simple thing for you if you just be willing to let go of your stuff, and that you'd be willing to embrace Jesus instead, that you would have eternal life, you'll you'll enter the kingdom of God. That's the appeal that we're giving to you. That's what we're asking for you. Would you do that? 
And you know what? If you're having questions about it, and you're like, you know what? I'm not sure if that would be worth it. I, I promise you it's worth it. I could give you testimony after testimony of how I've seen God work and provide in my life and how sweet it is to follow Him. But ask somebody else here. Those of us who claim to follow Christ really can sing that song, I'd rather have Jesus with full assurance and confidence. We know that He is better than all of those things. Why not follow Him today? And then, dear Christian, Please get this in your minds and work it out in your practice. Christ is everything for the one that's entering the kingdom. We have to be, Faith Bible Church, hear me, we have to be crystal clear on this, not only for our own soul's sake so that we can analyze whether or not we're truly saved, but for the sake of those that we want to see come to Christ, for the sake of those that we want to see go to heaven with us when they die. See, it's too easy for us in our quasi-evangelical culture just to assume that, well, he claims to be a Christian, or so-and-so has Jesus in their heart, but you know what the factors that Jesus gives is? There's a rejection of pride. Possessions don't equate to God's blessing. And they rely on God alone. Like when you look at the people that you most long to see come to Christ or that you have questions about, are these things true of them? If it's not... They're not entering the kingdom. And, and maybe the best thing you could do is, you don't have to like preach a new sermon, take your notes from this one and talk to them about this text and tell them why you were concerned. It's not just the pastor's job to say like hard things to people and help them understand they need Jesus. That's all of our jobs. And so we as a church, just like the disciples in that first century culture needed to be clear on who was getting in and who was not, we also need that level of clarity so we can know who we're ministering to. And then finally, I think the best thing to do in light of all of this is not just to pursue others and to examine ourselves, but it would be great to close the service out in praise in one final song. Christ for His blessing, for His goodness, and the way that He's blessed us. Let me pray, and then we'll sing about His greatness and glory together. Father, this is a hard text for us. But it's Your truth. Pray for those who are here that are not following You. I pray that they would see Jesus, find Him to be more valuable today than anything else. pray they would love Him more than anything. I pray that Your Spirit would do that work in their heart. Or for those of us who are following You, I pray that we'd have the courage and boldness to talk to others about this same truth. To see them enter the kingdom of God as well. Or bless our evangelism as a church. Continue to work in great ways. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.